And what if I were to tell you that there's an adult beverage company right here in Asheville that makes some of its beverages with ingredients they literally grow on their very own farm? Now, which brewery would you think of? Which vendor at a farmer's market might come to mind? Now, what if I were to tell you it's not a brewery and it's actually a really big business? Now, I don't want to necessarily blow the surprise of this episode, but I do want to tell you that we're going to sit down and talk to three of the people who help make this product in Asheville in a very special, very different Making It in Asheville episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of Making It in Asheville. This is a very special episode of Making It in Asheville. On this podcast, we like to sit down with local artists, makers, entrepreneurs, and community leaders to hear what they're making and how they are making it in Asheville. Now, the conversation is typically like free-flowing, lasts well over an hour typically, because we found that at over an hour, you know, that's where the stuff tends to happen. That's where the magic starts, right around 55 minutes, 75 minutes. And so uh, that's what we do. We have these long, meaningful conversations with people in this community to normalize what work looks like in Asheville. Now, this episode uh, is a little bit different. It's not like most episodes that we've had so far, and it's something that's exciting for us and, and very new. And so I'm going to set it up quickly, and then we'll actually get into the episode itself. But around this time last year, Sarah and I, you normally hear Sarah on these podcasts, Sarah and I uh, put on our list of goals, a concept that we called, you know, making blank in Asheville, making it, the it could change, the, the blank, banking a thing in Asheville. And we thought that, you know, recording our episodes live, which was what we were doing at the time since the pandemic, it's been entirely remote. But we were recording our episodes live, and we thought it would be amazing if we could just spend more time with that creator and and create a different type of project, one where we'd lean into process a bit more, we'd dig into production, and we'd spend more time with the makers as they make the thing. So making it in Asheville is a podcast where we interview people, and, and making you know blank would be more about the hows of the business versus the podcast, which is mostly you know when and why. Um, and you can't necessarily get into how as much, um, or at least, you know, we don't. And so with this pandemic, uh, it threw a wrench in the idea and we had to put it on hold. Now, uh, fast forward to, uh, I want to say the end of September, early October, we got a note from Biltmore Wines. And Biltmore Wines said that they were looking for a new way to tell their story and they wanted it to focus on community. And Sarah and I think that we have a pretty fun way to tell stories here on this podcast. Um, and we started talking and you know, the people at Biltmore Wine were willing to invest in this idea of sharing their story in a way that they haven't before. We are very thankful because it allowed us to take our first step into an idea that we have called making blank in Asheville, making wine in Asheville. And so in this episode, Spoiler alert, we're going to talk about making wine right here in Asheville, minutes from our office in downtown Asheville. Uh, we spent two days or the better part of two days socially distanced with the fine folks at Biltmore Wine, and we interviewed three amazing people, three hugely important parts of their winemaking uh, process. And we took these long conversations and we uh, we did our best to consolidate them into three short, we'll call interview segments, where we talk through what it's like to actually produce wine here in Asheville. And I, I think that there's something really amazing in this story, uh, one that uh, kind of, it, I'd say, floated to the top that I had never even begun to consider until we you know, walked the farms with their farm manager and and saw the bottling production with Jeff and 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 tasted the wine eventually. And that thing to me, that that the part that I find absolutely fascinating is that 
while it's still just a, a small part of production, there is a there are a number of wines coming out of Biltmore Wines that are made using grapes entirely grown on their own farm and then grapes grown all in Western North Carolina. And I think that's Looney Tunes, right? I I had never actually considered it. I mean, it's it's standard in Italy or, or, you know, in some parts of California. But today in wine, you see it's, it's, it's very common to, you know, buy the grapes or buy the juices from multiple vineyards and turn it into a blend. And that's a, a portion of what Biltmore Wines does as well. The thing that I find amazing is that they also have a farm large enough that pr- pr- produces a harvest large enough that they can sell wine grown entirely on their farm at scale. And so um, it's just here in our backyard. And I think it's wildly overlooked. Sarah and I, when we visited Asheville, we did a trip to the Biltmore House. Uh, We've been back a couple times since in the last year and a half. And until sitting down with the team at Biltmore Wines, we had never done the complimentary wine tasting on the tour. And so uh, we, (laughs) we, in hindsight, think that that's probably... Uh, one of our bigger uh, mistakes because we, since the early days, if you go back, I think it's episode 16, we've said that the Biltmore House should be on your list of things to do if you're visiting Asheville or if you live in Asheville. It's just too beautiful to pass up the opportunity to explore and um, I'll say uh, utilize that beautiful asset right in our backyard and so whether that means when friends and family come to visit from out of town, you, you buy tickets or you have a membership um, or you're visiting Asheville, like the, the the signs, I think their advertising is exceptional. Biltmore House, you can't miss it. And I think it's so true. You shouldn't miss it. It's impossible to miss when you, when you, you know, get near it and, and look at the scale of it. But we got a special behind the scenes uh, kind of tour because we went to the vineyard. Right, and so we sat down with Philip, who is the manager of uh, the the actual farm that grows the grapes, that the wines that are local to North Carolina, local to the Biltmore House, uh, come from. And so uh, this interview process, we sit down with three different parts of the process. We go and we spend time on the farm, and then we went and we looked at production from each step from. Uh, bringing the grapes up from the farm and, you know, in from wherever they're imported from, um, where they're processed and pressed in the uh, crush deck to where they uh, begin the aging process and the barreling process. And then we finally sat down and tasted the wine with the winemaker at Biltmore Wines, Sharon. And the process is to, to a person outside of that in- industry incredible, insane, unbelievable, the scale, the size, everything about it was fascinating. And so I'll I'll just, we'll wrap this up by saying that the conversations that we had were much longer than 10 minutes, but we did our best to consolidate them into the most impactful 10 minutes with each of these three guests. Our first guest is Philip Ogilvie. He's the farm manager Uh, at Biltmore Wines. He's worked at Biltmore Wines for well over uh, 20 years. And and the thing that I loved is he's based out of uh, Greenville, uh, where he grew up. And he, when he first got his job at Biltmore Wines, uh, he was answering a classified ad for someone to come pick grapes. And I think it's an incredible story. He's he's a lovely man. Uh, Please enjoy this first conversation on the farm at Biltmore Wines. It's crazy. I, yeah. I don't feel like Asheville's just three minutes, yeah. five minutes that way. Yeah. Uh, and you can't hear the interstate today. Some some crisp, clear winter days, you can hear it. You got it. But, and uh, it just kind of scoots even that, this yeah. way. Yeah. You've got I-26 that way, that way. and then uh, I-40 right over here, and 240's not far yeah. off. So we're, And then the French Broad, maybe on the other side the, of these trees? French Broad's just on the other side of those trees, half mile. And that, of course, divides the property in two. Uh, we're on the west side. And the house and the winery are on the east side, uh-huh. the inn and the 
the hotel. So we're, uh, we're kind beautiful. of beautiful. Beautiful. Not a bad, not a bad office you got that, here, Philip. I've heard people say that, but yeah, it's we we enjoy it. <laughs> what do we got over there? Cabernet Sauvignon. Cabernet There's, Sauvignon. Yeah, about, so, so this is Cabernet. Where is Cabern B? <laughs> so Cab- Cabernet Sauvignon. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Chardonnay. Chardonnay here. How, yeah. how many varieties are on the vineyard these days? Basically five varieties okay. now. Uh, one of those being Petite Mansang, which we've just in the last three years started growing. We've never grown before, so we don't really want to count that one yet. We haven't gotten a, a crop from any of those plants yet. Okay. So the others were, besides Cabernet Sauvignon, Chardonnay, and then we've got Merlot, not a lot of Merlot, but we have some of that, and Cabernet Franc. Okay. So two cabs. So two, and those are red. Those well, are I don't red. know the Petite. Petite Mansang. It's, it's a, generally uses a blending grape. It's a white wine varietal. Mm-hmm. Uh, in North America, it's being grown as its own varietal more recently. So we're hoping we can do something with that. And we're th- the thought is that the... Uh, the grapes themselves are a little tougher, a little bit more resilient mm-hmm. against the humid weather and the rain, yeah. and that suits maybe suits our climate better. That's our our hope, but it's yeah. an experiment. And it, the timeline on these experiments are, are pretty tremendous. You're talking about yeah. five, six years before you even get to right harvest something that you would then bottle and then get to taste. Exactly. For, for us, we expect in its fifth season sixth season to yeah. to get a a full crop which would average around three to four tons per acre volume wise uh, and some growers will and some winemakers will look for the older vines because of the depth of the roots right and they might pick up some additional traces of minerals yeah. other other factors that sure. change the flavor a bit the flavor profile for us, our soils are, um, they're kind of typical of the Appalachian region. They're, they're sort of a mix of, of loam, sandy loam and clay. They're not particularly easy to penetrate for the roots. Sure. So the roots go down, but they maybe not as deep as they would in, in Tuscany or somewhere. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we don't have those young gravelly soils. Ours are ancient. I mean, we're in the Appalachians, the oldest mountain range in the world, yeah. really. What, 480 billion years old uh, is, is what the scientists say. And wow. uh, so they're highly weathered soils, yeah. uh, kind of dense. And so that's the long answer. But that's it, five or six five, years. Five You're going to get a decent crop, hopefully. Wow. Now, we do I talk to other growers, and there are other people in North Carolina that are growing Petite Mansang and it's working for them. So Great. we're going to try things that, that look like they're working for somebody else. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. And how many acres can we see it right now? Is this, you said it's about 50,000 <laughs> 5, in grapes. Yeah. Uh, you can see about 50 acres, 50 acres. in grapevines from here. Okay. The open area that you can see all around us is about a little over a hundred acres, including the pasture. Uh, now we've got, more or less 40, 45 acres that are productive. So we always have... added a couple zeros. We've got, yeah, a couple zeros. 45 and 50 acres is still uh, seemingly a huge amount of land for for me. It's it's a lot for, um, and for growing European grapevines in North Carolina. It's, it's a, it's one of the bigger vineyards. I, I don't know if there's any that are larger than that right now. There, there at one time, there were a couple. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's quite a bit, quite a bit to manage. Sure. And then the other term that I've heard before is that you want that there was some sort of struggle, some, some strife that the vine or the grapes went through. And so some of it is cooling and and warming and having colder nights and some of it's dry. I think for the fruit, it's, it's an advantage, uh, here in the kind of in the, in the mountain region in the, in the Appalachians, we do get typically cooler nights and that's good for the fruit. Uh, and you know, we get warm enough during the day, but having that, that temperature change from day to night is, uh, it really 
helps ripen the fruits and makes makes the the grapes uh, just have more flavor overall. Those were planted in 2020 and this year, this uh, early in the spring. Yeah. So in um, late May, early June, we, we installed those, uh, and that's approximately three three acres in that field with the blue tubes, and then there's another little acre behind that. Uh, and those are Chardonnay vines, so we're sticking with Chardonnay. Uh, you know, we're not going to see a crop from that, not a significant crop, until year five or six. We'll get a hopefully a small crop in year three and four, a little bit more. Wow. Yeah. And Chardonnay, again, so Chardonnay from 2018 is now available for purchase. So that means mm-hmm. even after year five, if there's enough of a crop, you won't know until year seven by taste. That sounds about yeah, your right. Your math math adds right. up. Yep, that's right. Holy yeah. moly! Yeah. Color wise, mm-hmm. this section, grown up, mature, mm-hmm. older Chardonnay, you're seeing kind of a brown hue. Yeah. That's all that brown wood from this year's growth, the canes, which is a good sign. You want healthy wood turns brown in the fall. Okay. Uh, now beyond that are younger vines, and there's just simply not enough mass there to show up yet. You <laughs> do it. see you do see three rows that yep. have. Some I see them vines. now. As yeah, you said. those are uh, two years older than the ones that are on either side. Okay. So those are planted in you know, 2016. Wow. So there's a kind of an age difference you can tell there. Yeah. Uh, so from that, this is 86. Yep. And that's tw- 2016. Correct. Yeah. 30 years different. Yeah. Than children. Yeah, yeah. Fine. Wow. So the three rows that we can see with the canes that are are nice and brown, there's still some leaves hanging on Mm -hmm. there. Those should produce maybe close to a full crop next year. Okay. We're hoping. Here's hope. They're in their fifth. They'll be in their fifth season. Here's 2021. Let's have a dry spring, a a cool, not frozen yeah. Spring would be what we need. And then in 2023, we'll know for sure when we drink it. Yes. <laughs> Stick around, people. Keep your fingers, <laughs> fingers crossed. 2023. <laughs> I, the timeline on, on making... So, like, we make a podcast. It could be live the next day. It could be live the same minute if we wanted to. The thought that you put so much time into a thing that you won't get to taste or really know until years from now... My, my brain almost doesn't, can't conceive of it. Yeah. It's special. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I don't really think about it that much yeah. until I hear somebody put it into words like that. Yeah. I, and it, it's true, but uh, a lot of work goes into these. Uh, <laughs> here's a, here's a bad things. metaphor. You're like a kindergarten teacher. You put in so much time <laughs> with these kids. You just want them to know like yeah. that they're safe and that they can learn and there's potential and you won't know how they grow up and like what happens yeah. until so long after. Philip? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's special. It's a, it's a, it's a, I don't know. It must be a labor of love. Do you love it? I do. I do. I, I enjoy the work. I, I like working with my hands yeah. out in the vines. It, um, and it's good to see, you know, your whole effort put into a, when you have a good season, a good crop and to see that it's very rewarding to me. Well, this is stunning and gorgeous, and I think uh, we could start picnics right here and sell. I mean, people, this is yeah. this is absolutely gorgeous, and to think that it's, um, you know, I, I, what are we, we like of, seven minutes south of downtown? Yeah, Asheville? I mean, you feel like you're out somewhere out in Madison County or somewhere, but we're we're essentially surrounded by Asheville now. <laughs> Asheville's grown around Biltmore, yeah. So we're. Uh, yeah, um, we're we're in town, but it looks like we're we're not. I, I'm I'm floored, and I appreciate this so much, uh, and I can't wait to taste some of the wines. Um, thank you, Philip. You're welcome. Yeah. We came back to Biltmore House uh, two days later to then visit the production process. And uh, the production process is in these giant uh, industrial, you know, uh, I'll call them buildings on the Biltmore property with barrels and and, and uh, 
equipment that was the scale was gigantic. It was um it was like being at a brewery, but very, very different. I don't know uh, exactly how to describe the difference, but um one thing that stands out to me is just how how large everything was. And so we got to sit down with the uh, senior director of wine operations, Jeff Black, and look at each of the steps and and see where the grapes come in, see where they're bottled, see where they're aged, um, and hear about the process. And so without me uh, going much further into that, please uh, enjoy this second conversation with Jeff Plack, Senior Director of Wine Operations. So we get fruit from uh, our own vineyard. We've got about 50 acres on the west side. Um, We have fruit that comes from Washington State, California, and uh, sometimes we bring in just the juice. Um, so, yeah. So this wow. is kind of where some people say the magic begins in the vineyard, but that's sort of the recipe that Mother Nature provides. To yeah. me here, this is where like the, the fermentation magic begins is yeah. on the crush dock. The scale of this thing is gigantic. And then this works kind of like a Willy Wonka thing where it, 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 it comes back up. Yes. And then goes in. Goes, goes back up the pipe into the fermentation room and starts making wine it was funny this harvest we actually had the pipe got clogged kind of like you're saying <laughs> Willy Wonka like the pipe got What's clogged his name? God, yeah. and uh, Augustus, <laughs> Augustus. I think Augustus got stuck in the pipe and uh he just maybe liked grape juice a lot oh, and man. so we had to, about three or four of us had to get up there and uh, shake so Augustus back out so we could keep the grapes moving awesome. so at what point in the process are you starting to test and make decisions about what needs to happen further down the line to like get a flavor that you love or like oh we might need more of this this year because this is tasting yeah so so that could even be ahead of time um and that's where you know sharon as a winemaker comes in and she she's really she's determining at what point we're pulling that fruit off the vine you know so they're checking what the the sugar level is because there's that direct correlation between sugar and alcohol so we want the sugar at a certain level to attain a certain level of alcohol in the wine. So yeah. at that, I mean, she's pulling off the vine. And then here, as soon as it's going into a tank, they're grabbing samples uh, just to see see what we're working with. Yeah, we, so, while we were setting up, we saw like a laboratory. There is. Very yeah, science a lab. looking yeah. laboratory beakers, yeah. not just wine glasses. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's where a lot of the blends are created is in, is in the lab. Um, and so that's, you know, Sharon's in there working with our lab technician and you know, she'll call me in there sometimes when we're working on a blend because yeah. she's always, you know, she's got a vision, but she also wants that you know, another palette as well to kind of say, hey, what do you what do you think about this? We're in a new space. Where are we now and who are you? Uh, I'm Jeff Plack. I'm the senior director of wine production operations here at Biltmore State Winery. And we are currently in our main barrel warehouse uh, where we've got red wines, aging and, and French and American oak barrels. Um and so, yeah, it's a beautiful big space. It's one of my favorite places actually to come because it's, it's pretty quiet in here. There's some solitude. So if I got to think for a few minutes, I'll, I'll kind of disappear up to the barrel warehouse. I heard. Yeah. And how many barrels are we looking at? This, it seems like a lot. I think there are about a 1,400 barrels in here. Okay. Yeah, and each barrel I'm looking here is about 60 gallons. Correct. Of wine, 1,460 gallons, thousands and thousands of gallons. A lot of wine. Of wine. A lot of wine. Uh, a lot of bottles of wine and so how, what is your role to get the wine from these barrels to consumers to people like sarah and i who want to drink it that's the fun part <laughs> so we're everyday problem solvers okay. so you know sharon our winemaker she's got a vision for each wine and my job and my team's job is to execute against that vision and so we we take it from start to finish uh from the from the crush dock to fermentation to aging in the barrels all of the components, you know, bottles, labels, corks, making sure everything's here when it needs to be here, making sure the wine's getting filtered when it needs to be filtered, getting bottled when it needs to be bottled, and also the warehouse that it's getting shipped when it needs to be shipped, all so that the end consumer, whether they're an estate guest or a future guest off of the estate yeah. who has yet to come visit but still wants to get our wine, that they can get it when they need to get it. Wow. So here's another, this is our smaller barrel rim. Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc barrels that ha- are undergoing fermentation inside the barrel. Um, so you got to keep the, the yeast and stuff stirred up in there. The barrels with the X on them, this is really cool. So these barrels are brand new this year. 
Those were actually made from oak that was harvested from the estate ha. that we then sent to a cooperage, had made into oak barrels that then come back here and we're aging our wine in them now. So Jeff, where are we now? We are in our bottling room. Okay. Uh, this is when, when we're bottling wine, this is a, a very fast paced, very loud, uh, controlled chaos kind of atmosphere. Uh, sure. If you want to picture I Love Lucy in the chocolate factory, <laughs> yeah. uh, it can be a little bit like that at times. <laughs> you know, <laughs> some, you get behind and you have, may have to put bottles of wine in your pocket <laughs> yeah. in order to try to keep up. That's a um, great thing. But no, this is a, a fantastic room. Uh, this is a hub of activity several days a week. We, we sure. usually bottle uh, anywhere from two, three, sometimes four days a week, depending on the time of the year. Oh, wow. But um, we put our empty, empty bottles, come, our empty bottles come in in the case boxes already. Okay. So empty bottles go onto this table. This is a motorized conveyor. It then feeds into this machine where it gets a blast of air to kind of pull any, our bottles come in clean, but it pulls any maybe dust or anything may have gotten in there during shipping out. And then it goes into the filling room. That's an enclosed room. So when we're bottling, those doors are usually closed uh, to control the environment in there. It's got positive airflow. So air is always moving out when we're bottling so that nothing can come in. Um, bottles get filled and corked inside that room so that by the time they leave, they're already sealed. So from there, this is our capper. They get that pretty foil cap that goes on top of the bottle that we see that we always, you know, you got to cut those off yeah, and slide them off. For sure. um, and then from there, we have our labeler, which applies both the front and the back label. And then the, the last couple of stations, uh, this is our packing station. That's where it's fast and furious because it's one person there putting Shh. bottles into the case boxes at the rate of about 60 bottles a minute. Um, 60 bottles a minute? That's, correct. That's about a bottle a second? Yes. Okay, I was going to ask that question. That's yeah. amazingly fast. Okay. Very fast. Yes. Uh, and then it goes into uh, the taper, and then you have someone there putting it on the pallets to whisk it off into the warehouse to be ready for sale. Wow. So wow, on wow. a typical day, we've got a five-person crew in here okay. uh, working as a, a well-orchestrated team, and we're pumping out 15,000, 16,000 bottles a day. Wow. What does that mean in terms of total production? How many days are you bottling out of the year? Is it just because we're sort of around harvest that bottling's mm -hmm. happening now? We're typically bottling uh, not quite 52 weeks a year, wow. but almost every week we're bottling at least one to two days, sometimes even five days. Uh, five days is usually leading up to harvest because as we're approaching harvest time, we want to empty all of our tanks. Got it. We want to have nice empty tanks ready to go as we start to bring the new fruit in. So that's those summer months leading up to harvest season, I mean, we're bottling, 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 wow. fast and furious. So the whole, I mean, the whole production looks incredible. These boxes are beautiful. The bottles are beautiful. What, when you think about Biltmore wine, is there something that sets it apart, makes it feel different than most wineries? I think absolutely. And for me, it's, you know, we just this year, we released our 125th anniversary sparkling wine. And that number speaks for itself. 125 years of tradition being a privately owned, family owned, fully, fully self-sufficient estate uh, and all that that entails. You know, we're known for our hospitality. Yeah. Our wine, I consider to be hospitality in a bottle. And it's, we're a real place, we're a, we're a real French style chateau. And so there's an authenticity there when it comes to the wine that, that what you're getting in that bottle represents the entire Biltmore experience. You know, you're sitting down, if you've been here before, you pour that glass of wine and it takes you right back in a time machine to when you visited Biltmore itself and you get to experience that all over again. I mean, if you think about your sense of taste and smell, I mean, that conjures up a lot of emotions and memories and it's right there in that bottle. So absolutely, that sets us apart. 125 years of the Biltmore House. How long has wine and the winery been around? 35 years uh, since our winery opened to the public. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So we started planting grapes and experimenting a little bit before that. Yeah. Uh, but the winery opening its doors, the tasting room to the public has been about 35 years. Wow. Yeah. It's such a beautiful, um, it looks, it's got like both a very modern look and feel on the logo and then history baked in which is hard to do both at the yeah. same time and that was very intentional actually i mean the way you described it was kind of a lot of that the creative process that went into that label design when we were working with the firm that helped us cool. with that design yeah well they, they they did it check i love that and it, it makes me think about 
I would call it a faux pas that Sarah and I made when we first came to the Biltmore House. We didn't come to the wine tasting. So, it, like, wine tasting is built in to the Biltmore House experience? Absolutely. So what, it's what, part of the experience. So tell me a little bit about the wine tasting. I don't think we're near it. Are we near the building for the wine tasting itself? It's just on the other side of the wall over there. Really? We're that close. Oh, my you can, God. probably I can smell I, it. I honestly didn't know that. Uh, that's exciting. So... How about if you visit the Biltmore House, what happens at the wine tasting or what is that experience like? Because I'm, I'm thinking now of like international travel and the cocktail that you have or the, the wine that you have or the whatever it was, the beer at the Guinness factory. This could be that at the Biltmore House. Absolutely. Okay. So it's a part of, of your admission to the estate. So uh, I, I always tell family, friends or even anybody that I talk to is like your visit here is not complete unless you visit the winery. You've not experienced the whole uh, Biltmore experience if you, if you don't make that stop at the winery. And I think one of the great things about it nowadays is it's a, it's a very uh, welcoming but yet safe experience. So we've got a lot of safety protocols in place to really make sure that our guests not only feel safe, but that they are safe. Uh, so we do have a reservation system. It helps us control the flow of traffic so I encourage everyone to, to use that reservation system before visiting, but also come and experience our wines. And, and we have a huge portfolio because our goal here is to introduce you to Biltmore wines if you've never had them before, find something that you like, and then hope that you take it with you when you leave and then look for it again when you get back home. I love it. I love it. Thank you. You guys ready for sharing? I think, I think we are. At this point, we were ready to taste some wine, and so we scooted directly from Jeff to Sharon Fenchik, who's the winemaker at Biltmore. Uh, she's been also with Biltmore for, I think, over 20 years, um, and her role is really vital. She ties what I'll say, or at least to, in our assessment, she ties the work that Philip at the farm is doing with Jeff at operations and getting customers the wine. And she is, uh, looks to be the brains of the operation. The, the, uh, the way that Philip and, and Jeff talked about Sharon and her strategies and her ideas for the wine was really, uh, was really powerful. And then, uh, we did a tasting with Sharon. Uh, this interview will not have a tasting in it. But if you're interested in listening to the tasting, uh, we've slapped that to the very end of this podcast episode. So stick around to the very end. Ooh, and before I forget, uh, you'll hear a term appellation, uh, appellation in this conversation. Uh, to be appellated, it means that the bottle of wine or the product carries the name or the title of the region that it's from. So, uh, not to be confused with Appalachian or the region, uh, the trail, the, the area that we find ourselves here in Western North Carolina. It, I know that uh, homonyms can be confusing, and so I just wanted to call that out. Appalachian, uh, typically you'll, you'll see that for uh, the title, a wine can carry. And so California wines are appellated by their region. Uh, that is a fun little vocab word, but please enjoy these next uh, 10 minutes with Sharon as we talk about Biltmore's wine and its history. Okay, so tell us who you are, what you do, and where are we today? Well, thank you, and thanks for being here today. My name is Sharon Fenchak, mm -hmm. and I'm the winemaker, vice president of the winery here at Biltmore, and we are actually in the tasting room of the Biltmore Estate. So we just we just saw Jeff pop in with uh, some rosé for you to taste, and I know we've interviewed Phil as well. And I'm just wondering how sort of the your role comes into play with the whole production of Biltmore wines. Yeah, I mean the winemaker is a part of every part of the production. Mm -hmm. So from um, sourcing fruit, buying the grapes, mm -hmm. um, going to the vineyard, checking on the grapes, deciding when to harvest. So uh, Philip and I will be in the Biltmore Vineyard mm -hmm. mid August until normally mid-November, mm -hmm. uh, taking samples of the grapes, looking at the grapes, bringing them back to the lab, tasting them, and deciding when to harvest. Uh, we also work with other North Carolina uh, vineyards mm -hmm. and follow a similar process. Um, and then we also have a lot of partners on the West Coast mm -hmm. in California and Washington. 
So we, we bring in grapes, uh, we bring in juice, we bring in wine. We also bottle some product in California. So we have different tiers of wine here on the estate. So our Vanderbilt Reserve tier and our Antler Hill wines are actually bottled mm -hmm. in California so that we can use the appellation. Got it. So like Dry Creek, uh, Sonoma, mm -hmm. you know, all those great appellations. Everything else is brought back to North Carolina and bottled, blended. So only about 10% of our production is bottled in California. So we have a really um, diverse supply chain. Yeah. And from a winemaking standpoint, it really makes it a lot of fun. Uh, I say there's a lot of different ingredients I can pull from all sure. these different wines to hopefully make the best and consistent product. And what about, I'm curious too, what about North Carolina or growing wines in North Carolina and making them here is unique or different from maybe another area? Yeah, North Carolina, anytime we can use a North Carolina appellation like our mm -hmm. Biltmore Reserve wine, I'm super proud because mm -hmm. it's very difficult and challenging to grow grapes in North Carolina, mostly yeah. because of the weather. It's, so, not the, it's not the first place people think of when they think of wine, which it, is It is not. It is not. And Biltmore was actually one of the, um, one of the first, I would call us, pioneers mm -hmm. in growing Vitis vinifera, the European varietals mm -hmm. that we have with all of our wines. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we've done a lot of trials, tribulations, research to come up with the varietals that do well in our vineyard. And I'm sure Philip Oglesby is our vineyard manager, mm -hmm. and he does a fantastic job with he and his team and mm -hmm. um, making sure that we get the best quality product. So I know that the Biltmore wine process has only been in production for 35 years, and the Biltmore has been around for a lot longer than that. But I'm wondering, how have you infused the history of George Vanderbilt and his vision into the winemaking process today? Well, yeah, that's a great question. So uh, George Vanderbilt was a really great collector of wines, mm -hmm. and he would travel all over the world and then have those wines shipped back to Asheville. <laughs> and so, um, you know, there are, there are some uh, historical records of mm -hmm. what he drank at the time and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what he had um, delivered when he was having a party. So all that is super fun information. And um, it's, it's interesting in the fact that uh, he wasn't um, overly exclusive in his wine choices, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but he um, drank really approachable wines for those times. Mm -hmm. And he was pretty practical in what he purchased. Mm. So that's um, that's also that's a very interesting um, thing so about George. So he's not Brown. buying, you know, the most expensive wines for everyday no. drinking, but rather yeah. sort of your house, right? Exactly. Wine. Because I think um, I'm thinking this. Mm -hmm. This is my own interpretation, but I think he did a lot of entertaining and mm -hmm. having friends and family over, and he wanted something that um, everyone could enjoy. Okay. And so the, the vineyard itself mm -hmm. actually uh, started in the 70s, mm -hmm. right below the Biltmore House. And the first wines were actually made in the bottom of the conservatory before this winery was built. So this winery opened in 1985. But before then, there was a lot of experimentation going on and what grapes to, you know, grow, um, how to make wine. You know, so it was just a lot of experimenting. And then, you know, we planted the vineyard on the west side. And that's where the grapes come from today for mm -hmm. North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And so now we have lots of different Belmore wines. How many different wines are being produced right now or at any given moment? Yeah, we have a pretty large portfolio. Mm -hmm. And so um, we have about 45 different wines wow. available at any time. And so... We have a, a whole series of wines. Uh, earlier, we, we actually tasted the sparkling. Yes. So um, this is uh, one of our sparklings. Mm -hmm. And uh, this particular wine is the Blanc de Blanc. So mm -hmm. it's 100% uh, Chardonnay. We tried the Blanc de Noir, mm -hmm. which was Pinot Noir. We also do a Brute, and then we do a sparkling Moscato, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is super fun. And then we actually uh, have the Hunt, which is our wine that's actually bottled in California uh -huh. uh, and appellated. And then the Vanderbilt Reserve, which is also bottled in California. Uh -huh. And I'll bring this one over here. And then our Antler Hill wine uh -huh. is bottled in California. So these wines make up about 10% of our portfolio. Okay. So well. a relatively small amount. Sure. And then we actually move to our Biltmore level. This is our Biltmore estate, mm -hmm. 
level of wine and our tier of wine. And, and this wine will be in grocery stores. You can find it um, at the estate when you come to visit. This is uh, what I would call like your, your daily drink that you would have. Okay. Um, we have whites, uh, rosés, we have reds in that mm-hmm. tier of wine. Mm-hmm. And then we have our century wine, which um, this beautiful bottle that has the Biltmore House uh, etched on the outside of it. Wow, yeah, that's beautiful. And that's a different tier of our wines. Then we also have the limited release series. And this wine is uh, ex- pretty much exclusively available on the estate and mm-hmm. then online. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And I want to mention one more wine in our tier, I forgot. Yeah. Which is actually mm-hmm. what we're tasting right now. Mm-hmm. And it's our uh, Biltmore Reserve, uh, North Carolina tier. Mm-hmm. So the, these are grapes that are actually grown in the vineyard mm-hmm. or in other vineyards around the state with our wow. other North Carolina partners. So we're always proud when we can have a Biltmore Reserve product that's grown in North Carolina. Yeah, very, very unique product for sure. And so another thing that we talked about was um, that you have a wine club. We do. We so do. What, what, what all is a part of that process? Or that? Yeah, the wine club, we have about uh, 10,000 members now. Wow. So it has grown significantly. Mm-hmm. And what I try to do is I try to provide unique opportunities for the club to taste. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll get first releases. They'll get something that's only available in limited quantities. It's fun for me because I get little side projects and sure. I can just make that for the club. For instance, we did a North Carolina Pinot Grigio this year. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly all just going to the club. Oh, wow. Which is our wow. first release for something like that. Um, it's in North Carolina Pinot Grigio. So. so you get to taste things that are very exclusive and that most people wouldn't normally you get do, to try. You do. Yeah. And what we've been doing since March is we've been having virtual tastings for club members. And so um, they can have their wine delivered at home. Mm-hmm. And then they can taste um, with their friends and family. And we do that, of course, via Zoom or mm-hmm. webcast, however however we can at the time. Mm-hmm. And it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and then it just keeps people engaged with us. Sure. And the response has been pretty positive. People yeah. are happy to be tasting and feeling like they're doing something, even if they're quarantined at home. So right, uh, right. It's, been, it's been a lot of fun. So let's say I'm new to Biltmore Wines um, and wanting to learn a little bit more about the different... Um, types of wines that you offer. How would you suggest that I go about doing that? Would it be um, coming here to experience it or a tasting? Um, or is there some other process that you would recommend? Well, if you're visiting mm-hmm. uh, Biltmore, of course, come to the winery for mm-hmm. a tasting. I think we talked about this before, but it's included in your visit. Yes, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's definitely included in your visit. Mm-hmm. Right now, at this time, we're actually asking folks to make a reservation. Right. So there's QR codes up around the estate, or um, you can make a reservation day, o- day of mm-hmm. your visit mm-hmm. uh, to come and taste. We're being very safe right now. Mm-hmm. Um, with plexiglass masks, you know, mm-hmm. all of these different mm-hmm. things in place so that the, the, the tasting uh, goes uh, very well. And mm-hmm. um, we're limiting to the number of people per taste. So actually you're getting undivided attention yes. from your hosts. People mm-hmm. are really having a, a good experience mm-hmm. in this difficult time. So yeah. once again, we're trying to provide that hospitality to our guests. Sure. And so, yeah, come and taste. We're open. The Biltmore Estate's open. Uh, the Christmas decorations are up. Holidays are in full swing, so it's a great place to come and, and visit. Yeah. If you live in an area and you don't feel comfortable coming to the state, just visit our online shop and um, you know Biltmore Wines, and you'll be able to find a wine for you and have it shipped to your house. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sharon. Thank you. So there you have it. Uh, that is our attempt to tell a very meaningful, very interesting story about a process that happens here in Asheville. People are making wine in Asheville, uh, making a livelihood in Asheville by, by making wine. And I think that the process of making wine is a, is a beautiful one. You, you think back to you know what they call the old world, Italy, France. Um, I think back to a movie that uh, with each of these guests I asked about off, you know, without the mics, 
called Bottle Shock, which tells the story of California finally getting its footing in the world stage, on the world stage, by by winning a wine competition with its grapes. And I don't know when or if, you know, North Carolina will ever kind of break onto the world stage in wine, but I think it's remarkable that there is wine in North Carolina. I think that um, the idea of attempting to find the grapes that will perform best in North Carolina is one that's meaningful. I think that uh, attempting to support folks who are doing that is worthwhile. And so, uh, you know, we drink local beer when we drink beer. We uh, buy from local shops when we buy. We go to breweries if we can. And I think that... uh, you know, there's a good chance that like us, you might not have thought or ever considered, you know, swinging by the Biltmore house to do a wine tasting. Uh, you might not have thought to pick up a a bottle of Biltmore wine when you saw it on the shelf. And so if you do now, I think that's cool. Um, and and I know that we will. And uh, there's also the, the one note is that there's an incredible history here. It's been you know, in some way or another, the vineyard has been open for 35 years. And I find that fascinating because, it, you know, the the beer industry in Asheville is only 25 years old. And, and that means there's been a whole decade of wine growing and wine production in Asheville before, you know, the the industry that Asheville is known for even got started. I I don't know if anyone knows that. I definitely didn't. And so uh, thank you, Biltmore Wines and the team for your time and letting us uh, interview you and try and tell the story. Thank you, Chris Price, uh, for helping coordinate all of this and make this episode possible. Thank you, Casey, for the introduction. And thank you, Adventure Agency, for helping produce this episode. Now, we thoroughly enjoyed putting this together And we hope that you enjoyed listening. With that, um, all of the notes will be on our show notes page, like on all our podcasts. This is episode 76, so makingitinashville.com forward slash 076 is where you're going to find all of the links from this episode. And uh, we'll see you in the new year. We'll see you in 2021. Can't thank you enough for the support in this year. I hope that you are doing uh, well and that you're making it here in Asheville. We we look forward to sharing more stories in the new year. Please do reach out. Uh, got a bunch of fun ideas and concepts planned for the new year. Uh, we will do our best to share more meaningful parts of what it is to be making it here in Asheville. All right. Take care. Well, should we taste some wines? Sure. Okay, so we're about to taste some wines. Sharon, what are we tasting today? Yes, um, we're actually going to start off with one of our sparklings. Mm -hmm. It's our uh, Blanc de Noir. So this is made out of actually Pinot Noir Mm -hmm. grapes. So um, I know that Jeff talked uh, some about the sparkling process. Yeah. And so this is after you see that process and experience it, I always get super thirsty. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, you got it, you got it. You're like, "Mm, you know, I need to try it. So this is made in the traditional method, just like Mm -hmm. you would um, in Champagne, France. Mm -hmm. So um, basically what we want when we're pouring these are these nice tiny bubbles Mm -hmm. um, that we see. All these bottles, the bottles have around 90 to 110 pounds per square inch pressure. So there's, I always tell people, be extremely careful when you're actually open, opening one of these sparkling wines. Mm -hmm. The worst thing is if somebody shakes it up and loses half of the bottle. You know, I always want to save all of the bubbles, right? Yeah. Not give them away. And so this has a little bit of a, like a, a red kind of rosé color to it. it. It does because it's Pinot Noir. Right. So Pinot right. Noir is a, is a red grape. Mm-hmm. So what we do with this sparkling is mm-hmm. that we actually have it in the press like we would normally press a white wine. And we just let it have a little bit of skin contact. And then lightly press that off. We have that juice. We ferment that juice normally. And then we add our yeast to start the secondary fermentation in the bottle. 
Got it. Well, let's taste. Is there a specific Cheers. thing we should do in tasting the wine? For sparkling wine, the mm -hmm. one thing that um, you don't need to do is really swirl mm -hmm. because the bubbles will actually just be release, <laughs> releasing the aromas for you. Mm -hmm. So I would just smell it. And then I always look at the color. And, you know, I want the color for obviously for sparkling right. to have bubbles. Mm -hmm. um, and then I want it to be clear and pleasant to the eye with no mm -hmm. cloudiness. And so, like, as a winemaker, I'm always looking for, is there a flaw? Mm -hmm. You know, is there something that I mm -hmm. can correct or whatever? And, uh, you know, the color for this is uh, light pink salmon, mm -hmm. as I would expect for so pretty. Uh, yeah. Blanc de Noir. Yeah, I want, pink, I want our pink wines to be pretty. That's why when you look at this, you're just like, wow, I really want to taste you. Yeah. You know, so I smell it usually twice. And I get strawberry, some like small berry too. fruit. And um, often with sparkling wine, you'll get some toasty notes from the yeast mm -hmm. because it's aged on, on, on the lees in the bottle with the yeast mm -hmm. for about a year. So you can pick up notes like that and um, just even like bread notes, yeast, mm -hmm. and just the strawberry from the um, Pinot Noir grape is really, really prevalent. I love that. And then you have to taste it. Okay. And when I taste wine, I really want the wine to get in every area of my mouth. Mm -hmm. So I bring it to the front of the tongue, to the back. Just kind of let it settle there for a second. And you should, you, should you kind of get any air? I know sometimes with tasting red wines, for example, you might kind of like get some air in your mouth a little bit. Yes, but people can go overboard on that yeah. too. So um, uh, because... I, I want to get some air, so mm -hmm. I will do it in a little bit more of a subtle way. Mm -hmm. So just take a little air in mm -hmm. as you're tasting. With sparkling, it's a little tricky because you have the bubbles there, right. so it's kind of releasing some of those flavors sure. already for sure. you. I'm not a big one on um, making a, uh, an announcement. Yes. So after I, I taste a one, you know, we have those great notes that mm -hmm. um, we found. Did you find anything else other than the... I would say this, to me, this has a very balanced sweet and bitterness. I don't know if that's the right word, mm -hmm. but it's not too sweet, but there, there is a little bit of that um, sweetness there. But it's not like sometimes you get those champagnes or um, sparkling wines that right. are super sweet. It's right, too right. Much. And so um, this is actually the style of this is brutes. Mm -hmm. And so that's an indication also of the sugar level. Mm -hmm. So you're right on target with what you're saying with the sweetness. So it's usually around 1% residual sugar, mm -hmm. which is uh, relatively low. But the acidity in a sparkling is high. So mm -hmm. you do have those hints of sweet, but also the acid kind of helps yeah. to balance all of that out. Sure, sure. And, you know, whenever you have sparkling... Um, I want it to kind of pop in my mouth and yes. being, be really refreshing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I always say, well, what would I eat with this? Mm -hmm. That's my next step. So I would just drink this plain, honestly, but, um, yeah. you know, but yeah. some fruit, um, mm -hmm. you could have it. Actually, rosés will pair with a lot of red meats, mm -hmm. um, which is actually a surprise for some, some yeah. people to think about. Mm -hmm. Cheeses, fruits, um, celebrating Christmas, you know, sure. Thanksgiving. Yeah. I've also heard, Rosé, that, that actually with pizza, for example, you shouldn't pair that with red wine um, or white wine because of the tomato sauce, but that Rosé is the better option. Almost like a beer with pizza, you would do a sparkling Rosé. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, however mm -hmm. anybody wants sure. to drink the wine yeah. and pair it with something, yeah. I am open to it because everybody's palate is different. Mm -hmm. I don't want to really um, make big, strong suggestions sure. about what to pair with the wine. Be don't, let, don't let people tell you what you should or shouldn't be eating with the wine right. that you like. If it tastes right. good to you, it's the right pairing. I love that. I love that. Mm -hmm. I'm on board with that, too. I'll need another drink. <laughs>